Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us today. Um, we're now six and a half weeks away from the November 3rd election, although people will begin voting by absentee ballot relatively soon. Uh, the Secretary of State's office says that ballots are going out for absentee voters this week. And on October 12th, early voting starts. So this election really is right on top of us. And we will talk about some of the news uh, pertaining to the election on the show today uh, with our panel. But before we do that, um, we're going to take up two stories about institutions in Georgia that have once again captured national headlines, both of which are provocative and, uh, and, and uh, alarming to us at certainly some extent. So let's get to the panel and we'll begin discussing those stories. Greg Bluestein is with us on uh, Wednesdays, as he usually is. He's the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, one of a team now of political reporters who are covering the 2020 election cycle. Um, Greg, a little later in the show, we'll talk about the fact you were with uh, President's son, Eric Trump, in a, a campaign stop in Georgia this week. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm couldn't be better. Tw- week 26 of doing the show, <laughs> sheltering <laughs> in place. Half a year. It's hard to believe, Greg. It but, is uh, very hard to I believe. I shouldn't complain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Uh, today. Jackie Gingrich Cushman is with us again. Uh, Jackie's a conservative columnist. You can read her columns on Town Hall uh, or at JackieCushman.com, which is where I like to look at them. Jackie, you also are the author of Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening, your most recent book. Uh, Jackie, though, you're, you're, you have a column posted from late last week uh, you write about the Florida primary, uh, I'm sorry, the Florida general election and uh, how y- you see the Trump forces down there doing all they can to prevent Joe Biden from uh, taking areas of the state that typically are uh, in Democratic hands, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm glad to be on, but um, Trump is making great inroads in the, the Miami-Dade area, and part of that has been driven by um the, the candidates we have, the GOP has on the ground that are running on the races underneath them, um, as well as continued outreach to specifically Cuban-Americans. So it's been fascinating to watch. And my yeah. sister lives in Key Biscayne, Florida, so I, I try to keep a, a, a you know an eye on what's happening in Florida. Uh, very nice. Joe Biden is down in Florida, and uh, a Democratic Party has expressed some concerns. Some um, people in the party have expressed concerns about whether the Biden campaign is doing enough of an outreach to Hispanic and to Cuban-American voters in uh, Florida. So we'll watch how that develops in the weeks ahead. Um, Howard Franklin is back with us. Uh, Howard, of course, a Democratic political consultant and the managing, I think you're managing partner, is that the correct title of Ohio River <laughs> South, your <laughs> government yeah, uh, relations uh, team? Yeah, no, I'm happy to right? be back, and you got the title right. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, who who are who? What candidates are you uh, uh, working with in the November cycle at this point? Just for transparency, you know, this is, this is a, a really interesting cycle in that we're mostly doing independent expenditure work. So 
uh, working for the, the House Majority PAC, for instance, which is targeting uh, Congressional District 6 and 7, uh, and some other organizations that have uh, legislative, uh, a legislative focus as opposed to individual candidates this time around. Okay, thanks for telling us that. We're joined for the first time on the show, and I'm really glad we are, by Ryan Graham. Ryan is the chairman, current chairman, of the Georgia Libertarian Party. I believe I'm correct, Ryan, that you ran for public s- a seat on the Public Service Commission in the 2018 yeah, cycle. Is that, have I got that right? Yep, I ran against um, Chuck. Yeah. Eaton. Okay, thank um, you. Um, you're... F- you grew up in Athens, right? I did indeed. I did indeed. Um, grew up in Athens, moved to moved to Atlanta in like middle school, high school, um, and just got active politically probably like four or five years ago and kind of zoomed up the, the, the ranks in the Libertarian Party, which, you know, isn't hard. We're, we're kind of small and growing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have, I mean, thank you so much for, for um, you know, honoring your, your goal of, of having a balanced uh, show here, and then understanding that there's more than two uh, sides to make it balanced. So, thank you. Ryan, Ryan, let's be candid. You have pestered me so often on my email <laughs> to get a chance on the show. How could I not have you on? But you're absolutely right. Of course the Libertarians need a forum on this show. <laughs> I, have a, I, have, I actually have a reminder on my computer every couple of days to, to pester you. <laughs> I'm awesome. actually no I, I'm I, I'm very glad you're here and later in the show I do want to talk to you a little bit about ballot ballot access issues in Georgia which have been a concern of the libertarians but I think a larger question that this panel can look at while you're here is the impact that your especially your Senate candidate Shane Hazel uh, could have on Senate race number one and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show but Greg let's start with this uh, troubling story out of South Georgia, out of Irwin uh, County, out of Osceola, where um, a whistleblower who worked at the immigration detention center there has said that um, there are deplorable conditions inside the center, that the uh, staff is not testing uh, detainees for uh, COVID, that they're not giving PPP, they're not giving protective uh, uh devices to their staff, uh, that they've had had 43 positive cases, which the whistleblower says are not being reported out. And then there's this really shocking allegation that doctors in the center are performing hysterectomies on women who are in detention there. That one it, it, the, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, as we said in the headlines, has called for an investigation by the uh, Inspector General of this. Um, but it, it's a, the hysterectomy angle is a little bit harder to, uh, to get at, I think, because ICE denies that that would ever happen. Um, what do you make of this story? Yeah, and, and we've already seen politicians um, from both sides of the aisle uh, uh, call for immediate addressing of these complaints. I mean, as you mentioned, Speaker Pelosi said this was a, if true, a staggering abuse of human rights. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called on the, the Inspector General mm-hmm. to investigate the complaint. And Congressman Austin Scott, a Republican who represents the area, said he's reached out for more details. Um, and, and as you also mentioned, uh, federal authorities has forcefully disputed the implication that 
that there's any sort of experimental medical procedures. But the as much as it is as disturbing as the talk that that COVID nineteen wasn't being properly um, monitored in these in these facilities, it was the hysterectomy charge that really caught national attention and made this story go viral. Uh, well, sure, because it's it's really a a, a very frightening uh, a concern, uh, Jackie. It, this is a whistleblower report, um, and so we don't know anything about the validity of mm-hmm. the allegations. Um, we'll see whether or not the inspector general, whether the Trump administration takes this up. Uh, but what do you make just of the fact that that this is making headlines again? Um, well, clearly, um, it needs to be investigated. I mean, I think anyone, I can't imagine anyone not saying that it shouldn't be investigated. And um, to your point, get the real data, the real information, the actual facts that happened. And, and if there, something is happening that's not proper, to obviously follow up on that. Um, so I, I don't really know that beyond that, there's not really much to say, because until we actually have an inv- investigation, there's not really much to do, because there's no, you know, it's, it's an interesting story that could break later in terms of actual facts and information. But I think, again, um, there are a lot of other things happening, quite frankly, in the world that, that we should probably focus on until we get the facts and information. And that does need to be done, but we then need to wait until that happens. Howard, your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, I, I completely understand why Jackie would say we'd have to get the facts. I, I do think this is part of a, a startling and a, and a, and a seriously concerning uh, pattern of facts where uh, folks inside of government have been doing all sorts of things that cause citizens to question government, whether that, and I think that that, you know, unfortunately that pattern has extended to other uh, pillars of our society, but especially under the Trump administration, there's just been a a number of things that have happened that, uh, you know, previously would have been unbelievable and seem to happen with a a degree of frequency that it has to be concerning to any American. So I I totally understand why we want to wait for the facts, but just the allegations and some of the others um, that, you know, fly in the face of science, uh, that don't acknowledge facts, that get us into this, this post-truth or post-fact, you know, back and forth and politicizing things like mask wearing, et cetera. Just, they're very concerning, especially while we're still in the throes of a pandemic. Okay, I, but, but Ryan, I do I, – go ahead, Jackie. I just want to say, I mean, clearly, if these, if these allegations are true, it's horrific, so I want to be very clear about that, Howard – so I'm not saying that, but I do think we have a tendency, not just for a lot of things, to focus on information before we have real facts. And it's very hard to go back and, and clear up what is or is not true. And so I really want, I think, for anyone to say that facts, it appeared as though you said facts don't matter and let's not wait till we have facts. And I'm sure that's not what you meant. But I really think it's important that we, as from a news perspective, really focus on what are the facts, how quickly can we get them, and what does that mean? I mean, clearly, yeah, I, these allegations are true. It's horrific. So, you know, we just need to get into the facts and make sure that we have all the information out there. Yeah, I'm Jackie. Thank you for that. Because Ryan, what I was going to uh, point out is that while Howard, uh, we we do know that there are lots of reasons why the White House can be criticized for its handling of the coronavirus, about its uh, attitude about wearing or not wearing masks. I do think in this case. Jackie makes a point, Ryan, that we we don't know to lay this. This is a privately run uh, facility, um, and we really don't know to what we, we don't have any reason to believe that the Trump White House has any involvement in this. And maybe we ought to look at this as a very separate 
but disturbing issue. Ryan? Yeah, I think um, Howard was onto something when he said, um, when he was talking about patterns. Um, and the pattern that I've noticed is years and years and years of rhetoric that dehumanizes these people, people that just cross borders peacefully, most, mostly peaceful people. Um, and the, the idea that they are not peaceful, the rhetoric that's been used to call them violent, to, to, to compare them to animals, um, the outcomes that we would expect would be something like this, where people don't treat them like humans. Um, and I'm not saying that it happened, but I'm saying that, you know, years of rhetoric is what would have led to something like this. Okay, well, let's let it go with that. I do think the fact that both the Speaker of the House and the Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate have called on the Inspector General to investigate means it's a story that certainly is worthy of news attention and we'll follow it as it moves forward. Um, The other story about an institution in Atlanta that is also worth our time today, I think, Greg, is um, Michael Caputo who is one of the highest-ranking communications officials at Health and Human Services, appointed by the Trump White House to that job. Uh, By now, most people know the story that on Sunday, Caputo, in a Facebook presentation, accused uh, workers at CDC of intentionally manipulating data about the coronavirus in an effort to undermine President Trump's chances for uh, re-election. He said that there was a resistance group within CDC that was operating in this ominous manner. Yesterday, he apologized, apparently, to staff at HHS for these remarks. But uh, the damage is out there, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, this is a private apology. But look, he, he had a Facebook Live video where he accused CDC employees of sedition of a resistance against yeah. against President Trump, of, of kind of sitting on their hands while this virus uh, killed uh, hundreds of thousands and not wanting to act until uh, Joe Biden won. And so he's, he's basically accusing them of, of being traitors to their own country. And of course, this is a particularly significant story here in Georgia because the CDC is based in Atlanta. And as my colleague Jim Galloway pointed out in his column today, it seems like in Atlanta, if, if you live in Atlanta, everyone knows someone who works for the CDC. And and the, the chief person in charge of crafting the CDC's message and communications is accusing those employees of being of betraying their own nation. It's very hard to stomach. Yeah. Um, yeah, Howard, um, there are some 8,500 Atlanta people who have worked at CDC. This is an agency which for many decades has been one of the most highly respected forces in public health in the world. And, um, and to, to see, you know, we've talked on this show before about how leadership, Dr. Redfield at CDC, may have, in the way that he's worked with the Trump administration, uh, not done a great service to the CDC. But the fact of the matter is that we know that there are thousands of people in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. public health doctors, researchers, and others, who continue to do important work. And and so I think as as Georgians, we have a right to be a little bit concerned about these attacks on an important agency, don't we? Yeah, you're right, Bill. And I would take it a step further. I think more than just having a right to be concerned, we all ought to be concerned. Uh, unfortunately, though, and I probably jumped the gun a little bit on the last question I that I was asked when I started talking about this in particular, but again, I see a pattern here, and it didn't just start 
uh, with a high-ranking, you know, White House or Trump official uh, calling into question the CDC and the, and the folks who work there. It has gone back to mask wearing. It's gone back to denying the climate science can explain the wildfires that are engulfing uh, the West Coast. You know, so many things. It, it's, it's our governor uh, taking a podium on national television and saying he didn't know that asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 could actually pass the disease on to others. And I, unfortunately, uh, science has become politicized uh, fully and completely at this point. And, it, and this is, um, again, my concerns. We talk about being in a, in a post-fact society. You know, I appreciate what Jackie mentioned earlier, but I think he's got a, we've got, I've got a hope that we've got an administration and a president that actually will acknowledge a fact uh, when one sits on his desk or, you know, uh, crawls past him in a news conference. And I, I think the concern that all of us ought to have when a crown jewel of public health like the CDC is politicized like this is what comes next. Okay, so, um, Ryan, uh, aside from the fact that Caputo, who, by the way, has made it clear that he's having some issues emotionally. He's been very outspoken in saying he may have to step back. Um, if, in fact, he's uh, got it problems, mental issues that he's uh, uh, coping with, we, we obviously don't want to hear about that from anyone, uh, except if it leads him into launching these attacks. The fact of the matter is these are words. But there's another thing that's gone on at HHS that has affected CDC, Ryan, and that is one of the most respected publications in the public health global uh, community is CDC's weekly morbidity and mortality weekly report, which is written for public health officials and which is an attempt to put its arms around the major public health issues that CDC is coping with any at any given time. And, as Galloway points out in that column that Greg referenced a minute ago, uh, it was uh, the MMWR, which was the very first to alert the global public health community to the fact that there was this virus uh, called HIV, which they were beginning to monitor. And yet, Ryan... Uh, we now learn that HHS has uh, has said to CDC, we want to see this report and we want the right to edit it before it goes out. That in and of itself is something we all ought to be thinking about. Yes, Ryan? Yeah. Um, you know, as a libertarian, I have a pretty healthy distrust for the, for the government, as you guys all know. But um, I do like to operate on the, on the grounds that, um, you know, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to ignorance. Um, and, and so uh, I don't necessarily think there's ill intent in anything that's going on, but um, I do think that there's a failure in the system when the system um, consolidates power so greatly into one entity and that when, they, when it fails um, and doesn't have enough oversight and doesn't have enough people, you know, what I like to call crowdsourcing, um, crowdsourcing all that information, um, when they make a mistake, it impacts us a lot more. So um, I think that definitely opening up um, the CDC to more um, critiques and more input and more crowdsourcing from private sources, from other public sources, whatever, is a great idea. And I love your point about, you know, don't always assume malice sometimes either, you know, or it could be just incompetence, right? So if you, and I actually wrote about this a couple weeks ago, I mean, part of the challenge is, um, I mean, I think highly the CDC. They do an excellent job. I have friends that work there. I'm a big fan of the CDC. Um, but, um, you know, if you look back at kind of what's happened over 
the last, let's say this year, you know, in February, CDC was saying, don't worry, the testing kits are going to be fine. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We found out in March, I mean, March and April, that wasn't actually true. Back to your point, right? And the big systems fail, that they actually weren't ready and they didn't test and didn't go as they think. And they had promised the administration that it would be there. It wasn't there. We all know that. Then we get these reports throughout the summer. And, you know, I actually used to work in corporate finance where we pulled data in all the time from across the nation. And what's currently, what was happening with the, with the reports is they were county health officials possibly either emailing or faxing or faxing to the wrong department or sending here or sending there. Or, you know, were they compiling it correctly? Were they double? I wrote about this recently. I mean, the, the way it was structured is so unbelievable that it makes you wonder how it works at all. So I, I think it's a, I think it's to your point, right? It's a bigger problem than just, you know, look at it and say, oh, this is what happened. There's a lot of things that need to be kind of sorted out and kind of made sure we get accurate information, which obviously we need. Um, and I do worry about both sides of the aisle, um, you know, taking information that may not have been compiled correctly and then drawing these political narratives out of that for the future. So I think, um, you know, instead of trying to figure out, you know, what may or may not happen, I think we need to first focus on what is the real data? How do we get it and how do we make sure it's correct? And then how do we make sure that, re that CDC has both the resources it needs and more importantly that that they um, have learned from, you know, we, we made some mistakes during this process and how can we learn from that instead of beating people up, say, how can we do better? Jackie, um, how, the, the one thing I would ask in, in, in listening to you is whether we have any reason to think we're getting more accurate information when political appointees at the Department of Health and Human Services want the right to edit the CDC weekly uh, reporting on diseases like COVID-19 because they're not comfortable. These are not necessarily public health officials who are asking for the right to do this editing. Uh, is, is that really going to lead us to more accurate reporting? I, and my point is, it's a bigger problem than just that, Bill. we got to start with, if people are still faxing in data from counties and possibly to the wrong place, I think we need to look at the whole system. And to Ryan's point, Part okay, of the challenge that, is sometimes when you have a really big system, there are multiple ways in which it can fail. Thank you. I appreciate your clarifying that. Greg, one last note before we move on. Uh, it is probably worth our uh, mentioning that this attack on CDC, Caputo says he's sorry, but I think Hank Johnson is the only um, uh, member of our congressional delegation who has come to the defense of CDC in the midst of all of this. Have I got that right, Greg? Yeah, uh, and he represents a territory that includes the CDC, so it's it's sort of his backyard. Um, but yeah, we, we have not heard, particularly from any Republicans, saying uh, that that these attacks were baseless or, or, or criticizing them any other way. And one more note, um, I used to, at the Associated Press, when our health writer was out, I used to cover these MMWRs, and they were very, these, these weekly reports, they're very hard to cover, very, very precise. And if, if they came out five minutes after the, the, the time they were supposed to come out, something was up. And so what was happening in this case was they were being delayed frequently for political edits, apparently. And uh, and it was very obvious to those to medical watchers. It's not just reporters that rely on these, but it's public health experts around the world who rely on these reports, uh, to, as you mentioned, to, to, to notify them of new diseases like the HIV virus, but also to give them best practices to fight current pandemics that are out there and other other things that could crop up. Um, so that's how important these MMW reports are. They're, they're not just sort of 
um, sheaves of paper that are that are sidelined. They're 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 instrumental to to daily medical coverage and to responses. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, with that, uh, why don't we get to our first break in the show? And when we come back, we've got a lot of politics uh, to talk about with our panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, Jackie Gingrich Cushman author and uh, conservative uh, columnist, Howard Franklin, Democratic political consultant, and Ryan Graham, chairman of the State Libertarian Party, joins us. Um, Before we talk a little bit about your uh, issues, Ryan, in terms of getting attention from voters in the state and getting ballot access, I do want to just update people on what's happening with the presidential campaign in Georgia. Greg Bluestein, you wrote a piece uh, for the paper uh, that was built around the visit of Eric Trump to uh, the Atlanta area yesterday. Um, the Trump campaign is starting to pay a great deal of attention to Georgia, which might not have been expected uh, four years ago when the state seemed much more reliably red, right? You're exactly right. I mean, we're getting attention um, not only from Eric Trump, who came to town yesterday, and Donald Trump Jr. is in Savannah today, by the way, um, but also from uh, Jill Biden, the wife of Joe Biden, who had a virtual visit to Georgia Mm -hmm. with featuring Georgia speakers on Monday. We're not getting the top level of attention, which is the candidates themselves. Um, President Trump last visited in June, um, and and Joe Biden hasn't visited here in about a year. Um, So we're still not of the level of Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, you know, the, 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 the more lower hanging fruit, I should say, for both the candidates, you know, the, the, the races that are very, very close. But polls show Georgia is a close race and we're continuing to get attention. But I think Democrats, it's safe to say, if obviously Democrats want to flip the state, but it's safe to say that if Democrats can force Republicans to play defense here in Georgia, they'll consider that a win. And that's exactly what's happening. President Trump unleashed a new volley of ads here in Georgia, focusing on the economy just just this week. Um, he's having to send surrogates here. They're having to spend money here and, and hire staff here. So um, not saying that, that it's a lock for Republicans at all, but the situation seems like it's shifting towards Republicans in Georgia, at least according to some recent polls. But again, Democrats say that um, even if, if they have to get Trump playing defense, then they'll take that. Howard, it is interesting that the Trump campaign is now uh, getting out an economic message with their TV spots here, uh, because that's the one area in almost all of the polling <laughs> including uh, Mark Roundtree's polling for Landmark Communications here in Georgia, where President Trump still has uh, favorable uh, uh, numbers among a majority of Americans, um, because the law and order message didn't seem to be catching on. At least polling suggests it didn't. Uh, So, Howard, if this election in Georgia is played out on the the field of the economy, uh, Trump has an advantage. Uh, but how do you see this campaign's going to play out on the ground here? Yeah, that's that's a, a great question and, a, you know, a supposition. And I might question just a little bit. I do think uh, the economy is easily Trump's strongest issue. I mean, he obviously made his bones as a Republican candidate on the back of being a successful businessman. Uh, and, but I honestly believe that Biden um, being ranked lower on the economy isn't 
uh, function of anything that Biden said or done per se. I think it's just uh, maybe a bit of sort of categorical weakness for national Democrats um, as opposed to a strength for national Republicans. That said, you know, the, the economy is impacted by everything else that's going on right now, whether that's unrest in the streets, whether that's a pandemic um, that continues to rage and kill, you know, almost 200,000 Americans at this point. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's any secret why the president would lean into the economy on this. And obviously the state of Georgia has had has been kind of a shining bright spot um, across the country as a state that's figured out how to do the economy well, how to create jobs. I do think most Georgians, though, are going to look at are going to be more than single issue voters here. So I think having being well uh, liked or well considered as a steward of the economy uh, will not be a death knell for President Trump. But I don't know that it gets him over mishandling the pandemic, which I think is front and center for everybody and all the implications that go along with the pandemic, like returning children to school or uh, any number of other issues that are completely and directly impacted by our mishandling of this pandemic. Um, Jackie, um, one of the things that Mark Roundtree and his landmark communications poll seem to identify, and, and Mark shows uh, Trump with a bigger lead here than any of the other polling, and, and, and Roundtree is considered a pretty reliable pollster. Uh, and and uh, the crosstabs in that poll suggest that um, the suburban women that are getting so much attention uh, in Georgia may be starting to move a little bit back in Trump's direction. Do, do, Jackie, why would would it mean that the law and order message uh, might be playing well to certain segments of the voter here? Well, I think there are a couple of things that happen. If you look at um, the poll released earlier this month and, you know, Trump um, you know, went from 4 percent up to 7 percent up, but it was really less Trump gaining ground than Biden losing ground and people moving to the undecided category. Um, so I think what you see is people really kind of looking at, you know, the, the Democratic, you know, nominee, Joe Biden and, and Vice President, you know, Senator Harris and saying, is this the team that I want to lead? And I think they're just really unsure of what that means. And, you know, there is a lot of concern um, about, you know, if Joe Biden is elected, will he be the actual, will he be making all the decisions? Or, you know, will he be, will a team be making decisions for him? He seems to be a little bit sometimes not sure what he's saying. So I do think there's some concern. Um, and I do think also the other thing is that they're not, they are independent issues, but they build. So you, I mean, you really have to have law and order, you know, you have to have civil, you have to have people not tearing down, right, the, the downtown Atlanta to have a good economy. It's very hard to have a good economy when you have not protesters, but rioters, because protesters wouldn't actually break, break into businesses and damage things. Those are, those are actually rioters. But it's really hard to have, to have a good growing economy when you have people that are willing to basically burn the town down. So I do think there is some concern, but there's also the interlocking of understanding that you have to have both to really have this country um, up and running again. Um, Ryan, uh, react to what Jackie just said about rioters. I mean, we know that President Trump has conflated rioters and peaceful protesters um, more and more frequently. Um, but is it is it fair to say that rioters are really the dominant force in the people out on the streets? No, I don't think so. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've been in the streets with, with a lot of these people. And so I think that um, when you conflate the two, um, you're really just trying to distract us from the issues at hand and the issues that the protesters are going out there and talking about. Um, to focus on the rioters is, is completely um, just to, to try to defang what is going on right now. 
Um, and I'd like to say that, you know, you, I do see Trump talking about law and order, and um, I see Biden out there. Um, I don't know what his stance is, actually. Um, he doesn't seem to be taking a strong stance. But Joe Jorgensen is the libertarian candidate for president, and she's talking about ending qualified immunity, ending um, no-knock warrant uh, raids, um, as well as um, civil asset forfeiture, ending the drug war. She's talking about everything that the people in the streets are talking about um, and not getting a lot of attention for it. Yeah, just, just to uh, follow Ryan, what Ryan said, I, I think you know it's hard not to look back on the last three and a half, almost four years, and think about some of the, some of the win that was at uh, President Trump's back when he first took office. I think on a number of issues, he was thought of as someone who would again, be a more responsible uh, and effective steward, whether it was the economy, whether it was our foreign uh, defense and our international uh, relations, whether it's on immigration. We're, we're talking about the economy in this moment because he has proven himself not to be as spectacular, as effective, uh, of, of uh, again, of a steward of those other topics, those other issues that also concern Americans. And so right now, to me, the economy is kind of the last man standing, and he's got you know, another 46 days or so uh, to prove himself not to be, you know, the, the requisite businessman and uh, ultimate and consummate deal maker that he's always brandished uh, his reputation as. So I, I think that, yes, economy is important, um, but no, a, a poll is a snapshot in a moment in time. And I, I'm willing to bet that as, you know, uh, checks continue to run out for supporting folks who've lost their jobs, who are potentially going to be evicted. I, I think things could get worse. Of course, we're not rooting for it, but we want to prepare for it. And it's hard to do that when we've got a president who just is acknowledge, won't acknowledge or ignoring realities on the ground. Greg, why don't bit. you, uh, first oh. of all, go ahead, Jackie, and then we'll go I, to Greg. I'm sorry, Bill. I just want to push back a little bit. The, the, the challenge is it's not, you know, every presidential election, and Ryan, I apologize, I know there's a libertarian candidate. But, you know, the majority of people, it comes down to what, you know, what are the, what are the choices? And it becomes really much less of a, you know, who do I, who do I, in this, in this one choice, who do I, you know, who do I actually pick? And as I said numerous times on the show, um, in the last presidential election, the real Democratic challenge you had last time is you had Hillary Clinton as your nominee. I mean, she was, a, she was, in my opinion, a terrible candidate. She didn't like campaigning. She thought she would deserve it. She thought she should be anointed. Um, and so I think part of why Trump won, quite frankly, was that he had a bad um, – his opponent was not a good candidate. I would say in this case, and I know, you know, that, that a lot of people are very excited about Joe Biden. I think, quite frankly, that Joe is a great candidate for President Trump to run against as a Republican because, again, if you look at the enthusiasm number, the enthusiasm numbers are um, up 15 percent on Trump supporters versus Biden supporters. So, again, it, it, it's, it's sad because it, that's the, the way it works. But it's not just about, unfortunately, the issues at the end of the day. It's about who is the person you're actually going to vote for that's going to leave this country in four years. And you end up with those. You know, it's a binary choice. You can't, you know, you may be things you don't like about this candidate, but you, you, you're going to go with him anyway. <laughs> okay, Greg, on the other hand, uh, it's interesting that Fox has a new poll, a national poll out this week. And uh, in looking at favorability, uh, uh, Trump, Pence, are uh, less favorable, have less favorable numbers. They're both underwater in terms of job approval in, uh, on immigration, race relations, health care, and foreign policy. Then, uh, and, and Harris and Biden are, in fact, in uh, positive territory on both of those. So it's interesting uh, how Fox 
uh, looked at that, say. But, but Greg, you've been, you're following this uh, very, very closely. First of all, tell us, what was Eric Trump's message? How does it fit into the larger picture of how the Trump campaign is working to win Georgia? What, what's the messaging? Yeah, this was this was part of a, a, a outreach to evangelicals who are a cornerstone of President Trump's reelection strategy. Um, they helped him win his, his his office in 2016, and there are some polls that show Joe Biden creeping up. You know, not nearly a majority, but creeping up. Uh, one poll that showed him with a double-digit gain among uh, white evangelicals um, since Hillary Clinton's exit polls. So a 12% gain. Um, so Republicans are looking to shore up that evangelical base. And this was an event with several prominent evangelical leaders. Uh, it was uh, full of music and and preaching. And Governor Kemp introduced um, Eric Trump and talked about his support for the so-called heartbeat bill, the anti-abortion bill he signed last year. It was the talk of all these shows last year and is, is now somewhat of an afterthought in all this talk. Uh, but he talked about how if Joe Biden wins What's the first thing he'll do? Appoint liberal judges. So he made the argument that the Supreme Court's makeup will drastically change under a Biden administration. And then it was Eric Trump's turn. And Eric Trump talked about his father as a faithful religious man who upholds conservative values um, that the people in that audience uh, wanted to hear. And so he got standing ovations. There was lots of applause. There's lots of energy in that crowd. Um, and it was a way to sort of, sort of see in person that that enthusiasm um, because Democrats aren't holding in-person events in Georgia to to a large degree, while Republicans have been really since June. Um, we're going to get to another break, but before we do, Jackie, as long as we're talking about the uh, Trump-Biden race, um, you know, we're going to leave to Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, most of the conversations about the uh, Bob Woodward book. I mean, people can hear everything they need to all over the cable networks. But I do think it's worth at least a, a, a brief mention here. To what extent, Jackie, do you think Republicans should worry about the fact that it, President Trump is on tape saying how dangerous the virus is to Bob Woodward in March, even at the time he uh, was talking publicly about the fact that it will just magically disappear someday. And, and what I'm asking, the, the question I'm really asking here, Jackie, is do you think that the spin that Trump and his surrogates are putting on this, which is he didn't want people to panic, is going to play well or are people going to believe their ears? <clears throat> Well, I think that's a really great question. And I actually wrote about this last week by chance. I talked about, you know, are we going to base our votes on action? Or are we going to base our votes based on um, words and rhetoric? And so I, I think it's going to come down to action. And I think if you look at, let's take yesterday, for instance, um, and I know we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm sure we are, Bill, because it's historic. Um, the, yesterday, Israel signed along with United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, an agreement um, at the White House, which is a historic agreement. In the Middle East, uh, I'm sure it was mentioned probably at the Trump event, Greg. Um, this is, I think, for a lot of people, they, they can never imagine this could have happened. This has been a long time in coming. So I think when you when you lay down, um, you know, what's happened, uh, what Trump has actually brought to bear. And again, he's not a traditional politician. He's not someone who worries about his words. He's not someone who makes sure that they're all done perfectly. He doesn't read off a script. What he does is he he he's a he is exactly what he is. He's a negotiator. He's a deal maker. He's a developer. He's a reality TV star. 
and you get both um, you get get both good and bad with that. So I think it's gonna, an interesting question, and we'll see if people vote for you know words or actions. I love the candid response from you, Jackie. Thanks so much for that. I've got to get to a break. Um, and when I we come back, I do, Ryan, want to talk a little bit about the challenges that a third party in a state like Georgia has, not only getting attention from the media, but getting a, a legitimate ballot access so voters who might be fed up with the, uh, both parties in Washington right now have another choice. We'll do that and more after we take this break. Brian Graham, uh, chairman of the Georgia Libertarian Party, uh, you're, you all have been in court, I think since late last year, arguing that uh, Georgia's election laws unfairly restrict third-party candidates from uh, running for particularly Congress, and, uh, and you want changes made. Uh, tell us what that's all about. Yeah, um, we often get asked the question, why, why do you start at the top? Why do you run for governor and president and not have more down-ballot candidates? And uh, the truth of the matter is we would absolutely love to, but Georgia has um, some of the toughest um, ballot access restrictions in the country. Um, they require 5% of active registered voters to sign a petition, essentially. Um, for U.S. House, that actually equals something like 20,000 signatures for most districts, which is um, really unattainable and has been proven unattainable um, throughout history. So the laws were put on the books in the 1940s to keep communists, explicitly to keep communists off the ballot. Um, they were pretty loud and proud about it back then. Um, that's unconstitutional. Um, and they have been wildly successful at keeping people off the ballot. Only one independent candidate has ever qualified um, for, for U.S. House, um, despite many people trying. Um, and so we, we went to court. Um, so some years ago, the Green, uh, the Green Party and the Constitution Party actually went to court to lower the restriction to get on the ballot as for president. And they limited that to 7,500 signatures. And so we kind of came in and said, well, why should it take 20,000 signatures to run for U.S. House when it only takes 7,500 signatures to run for president um, and also, you know, First Amendment claims? And um, that's what the that's what the lawsuit's been about. And one of the things that we like to note is, um, you know, in 2018, um, 60% of General Assembly seats went unopposed, and that represented 80% of all Georgia voters. And, um, you know, so it's not like you have a ton of people on the ballots here. You have a bunch of people that are going unchallenged, a lot of, a lot of people without any choices on the ballot. Um, and you look at a race like the 14th district right now with Marjorie Green, and you have the single opponent has to step aside for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. Reasons happen. We're all human. And, um, you know, there's no one there to challenge her now. Uh, there's no one there to step up. Even if she was already going to win, there's nobody there to, to even speak out against her. So, um, you know, we, we think that we should clear the way for the ballots for third parties and independents um, and give more choices to Georgians. Yeah, Greg, we should point out that there is no requirement of any signatures for Democratic or Republican candidates to get on the ballot. They are automatically uh, placed on the ballot because the state does, of course, uh, favor uh, the two-party political system, Greg. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and independents, write-in candidates, all the like, um, are very rare in, in Georgia um, uh, elections, and um, only a handful of independents have ever represented districts 
in the General Assembly, and they usually caucus with one party or the other. But it's an interesting point about the 14th district race. Um, and you had Kevin Von Osdell drop out for citing family reasons, and later on told me about a, a you know a pending divorce. Um, but it would have been really interesting to see what would what a third party candidate would do in that race because there's so much attention um, uh, on that on that contest right now because of Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, racist and xenophobic statements uh, in in the past. So, um, Howard, I know the last thing in the world you would like to see is yet more candidates, especially in the races where you're active in the sixth and seventh district. But but it is interesting. That uh, I mean, I'm not talking now specifically about the Karen Handel, Lucy McBath, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, Rich McCormick. I'm not talking about them specifically. Nevertheless, at a time when, in general, Americans are very dissatisfied with both parties in Washington, the approval ratings in generic uh, ball- uh, in generic polling about members of Congress are really dismal numbers. Uh, that, that people might want an opportunity to have another candidate to look at. Howard, argue yeah. with me on that. I, you know, I, I don't know that I can take a fight with you here. Uh, as a Democrat, I don't think we're, we're, our party is not in the business of limiting access to the ballot. Um, I don't think that for many, I think the, uh, the Isaacson Senate seat <laughs> is case in point. I know there was a lot of argument initially that we just need to put forward one or two you know, strong Democrats to challenge um, Senator Kelly Leffler. Um And in this case, looks like Doug Collins might, might agree with me on this point and say, you know, uh, the incumbent doesn't necessarily have uh, a clean berth uh, to the finish line. I think ultimately, though, access to the ballot uh, should be a fundamental American right. There are um, some things that I think many of us would agree with, progressives would agree with, in terms of changes to the ballot. Ranked choice voting is another one that's been talked about quite a bit. It would save us a lot of these costly uh, runoffs, and it would show that the first and second choice candidates oftentimes would represent uh, the will of the people as opposed to you know runoffs maybe changing the complexion of a particular race. So I think there's plenty of room uh, to change and to improve the election system here in Georgia. I agree with Ryan on that. So Jackie, so Jackie, one of the things that's interesting about this is we all pretty much expect that it is unlikely that a single winner will emerge in Senate race number two, the, the, the uh, race for the, what is now the Kelly Leffler seat, uh, because there are tw- more than 20 candidates on the ballot. That race will almost certainly head for a runoff in January. We don't know yet. You know, we imagine it's going to be between a Democrat and one of the Republicans, Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins. We don't know that for a fact. Both Republicans could potentially end up in that runoff, as likely as that seems right now. But what's interesting, Senate race number one, where John Ossoff and David Perdue seem to be, based on every poll we've seen, running neck and neck, while the Libertarian candidate sits out there, Shane Hazel, it is conceivable that Senate race number one could go to a runoff mm-hmm. depending on how Shane Hazel draws voters uh, in a very close race between Ossoff and Purdue. Yes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, since we here in Georgia have to have, to your point, a majority of the votes, right? You have to, you have, to have over 50 percent, you know, 50, whatever, over 50 percent of the votes that whenever you have more than two candidates, you obviously have the potential for that to happen. Um, and so, you know, 
I and I'm personally not not in favor of, of restricting access to ballots. I think if you I mean to your point, the libertarian candidates, we should rethink. You know, how can they get on? Um, and clearly, was it twenty thousand signatures? That's a huge number of signatures to try to um, to try to gather. It's obviously a huge barrier. Um, but you know, you know, that's the way the current structure is. And I, I wouldn't be surprised since we do have three candidates to see that race go to a runoff as well, which in some ways could actually um, change the complexion of the other Senate races. Well, you know, it can, it can change the whole right how the the how how it ends up because it depends on if you have, you know, obviously in that race you'd have a Republican and a Democrat in Purdue's race. And in the Leffler, you know, Collins race, Senator Isaacson's seat, um, you know, you could possibly have two Republicans or a Republican and a Democrat, depending on how it shakes out. We just don't know yet. But that that other Senate seat going to runoff would obviously change the turnout numbers as well for that for that runoff race. Ryan, um, uh, I, uh, talk about give. Go ahead, Ryan. Well, what I'd like to add to that is that Georgia's laws um, requiring a majority to win and requiring runoffs actually kind of eliminate the spoiler effect. Um, it, which is which is great for us. We just need to let Georgians understand that they can vote for Shane Hazel, and only two people will go to the runoff. And it's not like it's not like if you vote for Shane, that's going to add a percentage mm-hmm. to anybody else. So there's actually no spoiler effect in three-way races in Georgia, which is nice. Wait, I, I wait, 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 wait. I don't understand that. The fact of the it's matter. Okay. Wait a minute. The fact of the matter it's is, okay. you need fifty yeah. percent plus one to win a race in Georgia. If 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 the if your candidate Shane Hazel draws enough support to keep both of the other candidates from getting to that threshold, you are playing a spoiler role. I'm not saying that's bad, but it, no, it is a spoiler role, anybody, isn't it? It won't cause anybody to win. No vote for Shane Hazel will pull away support from somebody in such a way that it will cause okay. the other person to win. That's that's the point I was trying to make. All right. <laughs> More important, you've got 30 seconds to tell us who Shane Hazel is. <laughs> Shane Hazel is a, no, seriously. a, a radical, um, and he is running for Senate uh, as a libertarian. Um, he's yeah. big on, you know, the, the old Ron Paul in the Fed, um, in the wars, and, um, you know, peace, liberty. Um, he, he's, you know, he's gone out and he's supported a lot of, um, you know, peaceful activism. Um, he's a big Second Amendment guy, though. Um yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I do. I was. I meant that quite seriously. We do not spend time talking about libertarian candidates, Greg. We are one minute from being out of time for the show. But the libertarian candidates do always make a point that we don't give them much coverage. And it's it's always a dilemma for us. Yes. It is. And, yeah. And, well, and, and, go ahead, Greg. I, I was just saying, in, in, a, ahead, in a perfect Greg. world, we'd have more reporters, more coverage of all these races. And in this year's race, we, when we're also juggling the pandemic, presidential contest, two Senate races, all the like, it's just tough. We're trying to. All right. I got, I've got to interrupt because we're completely out of time for today's show. Ryan uh, Graham, come back. You're welcome to be a part of the panels. Uh, Jackie Cushman, you're, we always love having you, Howard Franklin, and Greg Bluestein on the show. Tomorrow we're going to uh, bring our women's panel back that we had on a few weeks ago. People really enjoyed hearing about women and the vote. We're going to do that tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow. <laughs>